0: Hello there, and welcome back to the Paradox Podcast. Today, our very special guest is the one and only Garrett Spire, who will be talking about what it's like to be an ICU nurse in New York City. Welcome to the Paradox Podcast. I'm very excited to welcome Garrett Spire on the phone as our guest. Garrett, how are you doing?
1: I'm doing well. Thanks for having me.
0: Uh, Now, a few years ago, we were pastors together for the same corporation. Can we call it that?
1: Believe it or not. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I think we can call it that. Yeah.
0: So uh, you've gone into nursing since then, and you're currently a nurse anesthetist student, right?
1: Nailed it. Yep.
0: And you're in Florida. And then you told me you were going to New York. Um, Take me through that process and what led to you going to New York City?
1: Yeah. Good question. I am currently on hold right now. As far as my program goes, I still have class one day a week, but um, as is the case with most of the United States, all of the elective surgeries in Florida were put on hold for a little while. So all of a sudden I had like 50 hours of free time, (laughs) just (laughs) magically magically appeared. Um, So that was part of it is, is, with the elective surgeries on hold, they asked this, the, uh, SRNAs to, to stay out of the hospital for the time being until they could kind of figure out what was going on with, uh, the whole COVID-19 pandemic. It was kind of yet to see how it was going to affect Florida. Um, so I had a great time just spending a lot of time at home with my family and got to catch up on some things. And, um, in my, my free time I was just kind of perusing some various, uh, like, I don't know, Instagram, like nursing blogs, accounts that I follow. And, uh, I just started seeing like these various comments about what it was like in New York, which was, you know, one of the States that was hit really, really hard by COVID-19. Yeah. And, and they're just like these firsthand accounts of these nurses that work at these hospitals of like one to four to five to six ratios in the ICU. Um, And normally in the ICU, like you're maxed out at two patients, especially if they're on like a a ventilator and all of these COVID patients were all on ventilators and on multiple drips. And I mean, it just sounded like honestly sounded like something out of a nightmare to me. So I started like reading more about it and, and, and seeing if it was actually true and this was actually happening in New York. And, And sure enough, the article started coming out about that, these hospitals were just being inundated with COVID-19 patients, really sick. They didn't have enough ICU nurses to take care of the patients and, uh, we're kind of looking for any help that they could get. So I've never actually done, uh, travel nursing in my life. I just worked for Loma Linda, which was, um, the only hospital that I've worked for. So I just, I just like Googled best travel nursing agency. Yeah, okay. And, um, yeah, it <laughs> Seemed <laughs> seem like a reasonable way to figure things out. And, good thing you um, put
0: the word "best" in there because yeah. that really—that really qualifies. Google really really scans for the best with the word "best" in there. <laughs>
1: that's what I. That's what I hear. You know, that's what I hear. So, <clears throat> I try to do my due diligence and uh, and vet a few agencies before uh, submitting my information. And, and I found one that actually had some pretty good reviews. And so, yeah, I just submitted my name, and um, they called me back. And I'm like, hey, you know, I I've been reading these things about you know these hospitals that have just been slammed. Is there any way I can help? I'm ne- I've never traveled before. You know, I'm currently in school, but I have some free time right now, and I'd be willing to go to uh, New York if if you know I'm I'm acceptable, unacceptable candidate, and they want me. And so uh, like three days later, maybe two or three days later, I had a, a flight out there, uh, a, a plane ticket. And, um, I had like a six hour orientation once I got to the hospital and then it was, uh, it was action, man. I was, I was on the floor taking care of COVID patients. So it was, it was honestly kind of a blur, but, um, it all kind of started with, I just felt like I had all these skills that weren't being used and, and I felt like I could, hopefully make a difference to, you know, to some degree. And, and, uh, it ended up being a really valuable experience, but yeah, wow. the, the long answer to your, your short question is just, yeah, that's, that's kind of how it all started. And, and, uh, it kind of just, uh, Got took on a life of its own.
0: <laughs> was there any complications with getting licensed or board no. certified or anything? <laughs> no, that just was said... what
1: exactly right. <laughs> so luckily I still have, I have multiple nursing license. I have a nursing license still in California and then I have a, uh, current nursing license in Florida. So because of the crisis, uh, New York was waiving their requirement for New York licensure and they'd okay. take any, any current nursing license.
0: Any in, and, this, uh, in the States or in the world?
1: In the States, in okay. the States. Yeah, I don't, the, I don't know about, I don't know, yeah, I don't know about the world, but, um, but as far as in the United States, they take any sort of current nursing license. Wow. And I mean, the other thing for me too, is, you know, I have a much, much better understanding of anesthesia, but I, I haven't like done ICU bedside nursing for, uh, since December, you know. I think, I don't know, 2008, probably even like November, 2018. So it's been a while since I've actually taken care of a, a ICU patient in that capacity. So they knew that and I didn't have, uh, you know, my license and, and, and clearly they were very desperate, <laughs> but, um, but yeah. yeah, man, it ended up, it ended up really working out. There weren't any, any sort of like uh, um, complications along the way they were, the agency handled all that for me. So that was really nice.
0: Okay. Nice. So you signed up. Three days later, you had a plane ticket. What was the distance between the time you got the, the plane ticket and you, your plane left?
1: Uh, good question. I think I got the plane ticket the night before. So JetBlue was giving um, out free plane oh tickets to nurses. So yeah, I didn't really know when I was going to fly out. Um, they had like a few... Uh, available flights. A lot of the flights were being canceled to New York. I mean, understandably just because of how all this just mass amount of uh, of cases that were coming out of New York at the time. And I got my plane ticket the night before I was supposed to start and they kind of knew they had multiple um, orientation days. So I I thought, you know, worst case scenario, I won't orient on Wednesday. I think it was April the 8th. This was my orientation day. So I flew out Tuesday And, um, worst case scenario, I just fly out later and then, you know, start a few days later, but, um, but yeah, I got the plane ticket the night before and, uh, was able to fly out there. There's a little, a little complication. I, they had told me I was going to go to a hospital. So NYU has multiple hospitals, uh, in the, the New York area. And they had told me that I was going to go to the NYU hospital in Brooklyn. And then when I got there, I got a hotel in Brooklyn. Cause that's where I, I thought I was going to be until I could kind of figure out where I was going to stay and, you know, figure out that whole thing. I'd never been to Brooklyn or New York before. So it was my first time flying in there. Oh, and, wow. um, okay. and,
0: then,
1: and then at like 9 PM the night before I was supposed to start, they, uh, they told me like, Oh shoot, uh, you're actually not going to be in Brooklyn. We need you in Manhattan. So I had to, I had oh to pick gosh. up all my stuff at, <laughs> yeah, I had to pick up all my stuff at like nine thirty and then find a hotel in in Manhattan and, uh, and figure it out so uh, luckily people were so cool and really uh, accommodating to all the you know the healthcare workers that were in New York and and wow. so yeah so it was a little crazy at first that's
0: great so what was that first day on the floors like and the first moment
1: yeah it was terrifying I, I um I definitely had some anxiety the night before, not necessarily like for myself, but um, because I don't really have a lot of risk factors for COVID, but, you know, you still in the back of your mind, you know, I, for those who don't know, I'm, I'm married and I have a a little girl and I don't know, you're just thinking about yourself and, you know, you'd you'd like to think that, you know, you're not going to get sick, but, you know, I was on an all covid icu so every single patient on our entire unit was covid positive and was really sick um so yeah so every you know it's not like you're not going to get exposed to covid um i think the thing that made me the most nervous though craig was the ppe is i didn't know how much ppe that that they had and they were no one really knew you know exactly it was such a chaotic time that I, would I'd asked the travel agency, like, Hey, like, do you know the situation as far as like N95s go, as far as gowns go? Like, do they have enough? I I've kind of heard that they're running low and, um, yeah, so they didn't know. And I decided to go over there anyways and just kind of figure it out. And if it was, you know, really, really bad and I didn't feel it was a safe situation, then I could always, you know, come home. But, um, but when I got over there, yeah, I think that was probably what maybe the most anxious was just the unknown of what, what the, the PPE situation was going to be. But um, my first, so my first, I, I had about like a, I don't know, maybe about a six hour orientation. And then the following night, I, I worked nights on, on, at a NYU. Um, and so, yeah, the following night I was scheduled to start. So I was going to work three shifts in a row, and um, I, I flew into New York. I think a day before the absolute peak of COVID admissions in New York, so it was just like flying, <laughs> flying right, right into the heart of the beast. So it was like really, it was like a really. Um, like is
0: your is your heart pumping as your plane is starting to land? Not
1: really. I didn't. I didn't really. It, yeah, I didn't really fully, it didn't really, at least for me personally, it was really hard for me to get my mind wrapped around it because I hadn't seen a COVID patient before. So I didn't know what they were going to look like, what it was going to present as. I personally didn't know anybody who had who had been, you know, affected by COVID or died from COVID. So I think that's part of the big disconnect is if you don't have that sort of personal experience with it, it's hard to kind of feel anxious or had that real sense of, of how sick these patients were. Um, but, but I, yeah, so I decided to work. I, I, I initially was scheduled for days in Brooklyn and then they rescheduled me the night before for nights in, in Manhattan. And they were actually kind enough to ask me to work nights. So they, this is how desperate it was in New York. So they were cross training um, step down nurses, so nurses who had never worked in the ICU, and they were just giving them just just this, this, this kind of like crash course into the ICU, um, and then they were oh, no. they were they were cross training <laughs> OR nurses. They were cross training really anybody who was available, um, because there were various units who obviously because of COVID had essentially no patients. You know, especially like the OR because all the elective surgeries. So a lot of the OR nurses were on our unit. And luckily some of those OR nurses or like PACU nurses had had ICU experience, but a lot of them, (laughs) a lot of them had no experience whatsoever. So, so I got, um, so I was one of like, I think like four or five actual ICU trained nurses on an all COVID ICU of like 36 beds. And that's why they had me work nights because I was like, it's like, we really need ICU nurses. And it, Oh, it was so crazy. Yeah, so
0: I'll bet they do. Anyways.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. So um, my first night, let me tell you about my first night. So my first night I got on and I was, I was paired with an NYU nurse and I was, they, there were not that many NYU nurses on our unit. So it was almost like an entire floor of travel nurses, which is terrifying. Like none of us know where anything is. Um, how to get meds, like all of that orientation was like really, really fast tracked. And, and, um, we had like one, I think there was one NYU nurse who's an ICU nurse from a different floor, mind you, she didn't really even know this floor, but she was at least an NYU nurse and kind of knew the protocols. But, um, there was three of us and then each of us had three patients. So it was kind of like one NYU nurse over nine patients and three nurses, three travel nurses. So my, um, a lot of what they were doing on the units was proning patients who were intubated because they were finding that to be an effective treatment for the acute respiratory distress syndrome that a lot of these like ICU COVID patients were, were, uh, going into. And, um, and another thing with these COVID patients is they were like really, uh, they were really prone for clotting. And so a lot of them were on like an anticoagulant. I don't know if you're familiar with the medication heparin, but they would give it IV heparin to kind of try to decrease the, the coagulability or the ability of the blood to clot. And my, within like the first hour, Craig, my patient had to be prone, And so there's like a whole ordeal and the anesthesia team comes up and, and they help you kind of position the patient. So we prone the patient and my patient threw a massive, what was later diagnosed as a pulmonary embolism ended up coding and died. And that was my first hour on the unit.
0: It's and 30 <laughs> it minutes. Oh my gosh. The
1: first hour, the first hour, oh my the first hour <laughs> of, yeah, it was absolutely crazy. Like the, the patient was supposed to be prone to on day shift, but the, the, the poor anesthesia team, they were so busy. I mean, there's there were like, I think like six COVID ICU floors at NYU each, each one with 36 beds and this anesthesia team was responsible for proning all of these patients, you know, and proning was usually kind of one of the later maneuvers that they do if the patient wasn't responding. And, um, anyways, so that happened within my first hour of being at NYU. It was just, it was crazy. So at that point I was like, what, what did I just sign up for? This is so nuts.
0: Um, (laughs) I can't imagine.
1: Oh man. And it's, and it was just, just the whole like protocol too, of, of, uh, of like running a code was completely different. So the patient didn't end up like going in, like throwing the PE until a a few minutes after we prone them. So we had, we had prone them and these aren't beds, mind you, these are normal ICU beds. Normally like when you prone a patient and proning means like you, you position the, the patient face down versus like on their back. So they're on their stomach and, you know, there's a lot of considerations you have to take for that. Um, And we, we got the patient, you know, chin, they were stable, vital signs looked good. And we all, you know, took off our PPE and walked out of the room and all of a sudden the alarms start going off and, and, um, and we had luckily a a monitor outside of the the room that we could watch. And obviously it looked like patient was going into a PE. So we all have to put all our PPE on again, go back into the room and, um, uh, oh, it was just, it was, it still kind of gives me anxiety talking about it. It was definitely a, a really, uh, wow. crazy like introduction into, <laughs> into the ICU. So yeah, yeah, that was my first, my first 60 minutes at, at uh, on, at NYU. So it was, it was pretty exciting for sure.
0: So you were talking about like, you didn't, you hadn't seen a COVID patient or, or anything like that. So you didn't really know what to expect. Like, what would you say to those of us who are not in the medical field about what it's like of being around people that have COVID? Because we don't, we we may have heard like experiences here or there, but we haven't really seen it firsthand, a lot of us.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, good question. Um, I mean, these patients that I was taking care of were really, really sick. Um, A lot of the patients that we get up to our unit would present to the emergency department in just really, really bad shape. And they get intubated in the the emergency department and then, you know, they come up to the ICU. But, um, man, I mean, as far as what it's like, it's not really that different than, you know, taking care of, you know, your, your traditional, um, kind of like medical ICU patient or a patient with, you know, I mean, acute respiratory distress syndrome or ARDS is not something that's foreign in the ICU or unique to a COVID patient. Um, but it's just the whole, um, yeah, I guess just dynamic with just thinking about trying to be as careful as possible um, with, with, obviously, you want to provide excellent care for the patient, but at the same time, you're trying to think of yourself and and protect yourself, right? Because if you get COVID, then there's not people who can care for COVID patients. So, the priority at NYU was obviously always protect yourself first. Um, so that kind of looked unique wow. in a, a few a few like circumstances. I'll try to give you examples. So the example I was talking about earlier, where you know the patient is had a pulmonary embolism or 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 what we call coated, or had like you know different things like cardiac arrest or maybe something people are, are familiar with. Normally like in the ICU, everyone just runs in, you have like four to five nurses w- multiple people doing chest compressions, you know, people just, just pushing meds, the other person's documenting, you have multiple doctors in there, the attending, the resident, a whole team that's like dedicated for, you know, this, this response. Um, so at, at NYU with the COVID patients, because, of COVID, obviously the priority was putting on your PPE first. So you don't run into a patient's room unprotected, you know, you just don't, that's just not as crazy as that sounds. And obviously you want to take the best care of patients. You have to protect yourself first. So, and it takes it, that's probably one thing that I didn't realize is how long it takes to put some Mm. of this PPE on because you're putting on a whole gown and we had like depending on the day, like, OR surgical gowns, we had, um, just kind of like these paper gowns and, and they really take a long time, um, to actually put on the right way. And then you're putting on up to three pairs of gloves and then you're putting on your N95 and then a surgical mask over your N95. And then you're putting on your face shield. I mean, all that takes, it takes minutes. And these are minutes that feel like eternity when a patient is really unstable and, uh, needs medical attention. So, yeah, it was, <laughs> it was kind of just them on a,
0: like really hastily too. on top of that, right? Like it's
1: as fast as possible, but also you don't want to miss something. You know, you also want to make yeah, sure course. that your, your, your mask is in the right. And so it's, it's, it was just a very bizarre time in medicine. It was really hard to kind of get your mind wrapped around. Um, but yeah, it was just weird. I guess it's just like the, the, the perfect word for it. Very weird.
0: Yeah, I bet. Wow. So how did you, and you were there for 6 weeks. So like how did it start to change from week to week after you, you know, from your first night to did you, did it ever feel settled or did it always feel chaotic and kind of out of control? Like what did it what did you see, start to see in the changes from week to week?
1: Yes, absolutely. So the first week was really crazy. Every shift was very chaotic. I mean, just from a logistical standpoint, like just trying to figure out where stuff is on the unit. And, you know, like I said, most of our unit were made up of travel nurses. The NYU nurses, I will say are amazing nurses. I cannot imagine what it, what it would be like. I mean, before we got there, some of these NYU nurses were taking like five to six ICU patients by themselves. I mean, just pure heroic, uh, above and beyond type of stuff. I mean, they're just amazing. And wow. then all of us come in to try and help. And, you know, at, at first I mean, obviously we're there to help, but at first it's like we're more of a burden than we are help because none of us know anything about where, you know, anything is. And so they're having to teach so much and 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 they were just so kind and so gracious. And uh I hope we overall we were a, a help to NYU, and I think we were, but I mean, these nurses <laughs> net, were just a net
0: positive. That was the goal, a
1: net positive. Yeah, right. You just want to be a net positive, and and um, they were so 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 amazing. I cannot speak more highly to uh, of the caliber of of doctors, nurses, just everybody there. At NYU were just absolutely amazing. So, um, the first week was crazy, just from that standpoint of just trying to figure out where things are, and and everyone. Like I said, I kind of we started right before the peak of COVID in new york so there were so many patients there was talk of running out of ventilators the the week the first week i was there um most of these patients that i had i never saw a patient on like a traditional icu ventilator they were either on like a a or anesthesia machine or they were on like a transport ventilator which is just like absolutely crazy that's just like not something you keep a patient on long term but There were no, there was no other option. That was the only thing we could do to keep the patients alive. And there was talk the the week, the first week I started that we were running out of transport ventilators, but luckily we got a new shipment in the second week and we were able to kind of uh, brace for the impact of how many patients we got. So second week was also pretty crazy. Um, The third week, it really started to kind of stabilize because we started getting less admissions and then we got more travel nurses in. And that was really, really helpful. And then by that time, you know, the the first wave of travel nurses had been there for a couple of weeks and, and, um, we were able to kind of help the new, the new ones that came kind of, uh, orient around the unit and kind of train them on the various things that we learned. And so, um, believe it or not, like, you know, I'd been there two weeks, but I was like orienting nurses to the ICU, you know, after two weeks, yeah. that's just the, the situation, yeah. I was in as they're like, Hey, you know, you're an ICU nurse. Can you orient these you know, two nurses to about arterial lines and central lines? And just, you know, just, just cause again, it's just this kind of crash course into the ICU. But, um, I think that was probably like one of the coolest things that I saw at my time in New York is just, it didn't matter what your title was. Everybody worked so well together. Like there was just this sense of like, camaraderie and teamwork that I've never seen in healthcare. Um, and everybody, I think is part of it, is just, just the nature of like a pandemic of how it just bonds people together. And you're all in this really crazy upside down, kind of like surreal, uh, you know, reality. And everybody is just working as hard as they can to try to take care of patients. And, and everyone's just really doing their best. And, and uh, it was really cool to see. So that that kind of like third fourth week, it really it really started to stabilize and slow down. And um, on top of getting more you know staff, we had far less admissions. Um, and then kind of yeah. the my last couple weeks there, we were able to the we were able to cut the our unit in half. So half of the unit was ICU, and then the other half was like acute. And those are patients that were like recently extubated or that were COVID positive still or COVID positive patients that were like pretty close to uh, needing uh, intubation. Um, So just kind of like right on the the line, like not true ICU patients, but, you know, could turn to ICU patients here pretty quickly. And then my last week, which was really cool, we were able to to take the rest of the ICU patients and move them to another floor. And then that entire floor uh, was just acute patients so that was really, really like wow. encouraging to see. Um, I will say like my first couple weeks, I was really just depressed just because of how many patients were dying and, and I didn't, you know, part of why you're in healthcare is you want to feel like you're making a difference. And it's, it was just like really hard to see that many patients die that often. And it wasn't always my patients, but, you know, we're all helping In different rooms. And, you know, when a patient's not doing well, we all try to help as much as possible. And so you still kind of feel like it's your patient when, when they pass away, because, you know, you've been helping and you're part of the team. And so that was like emotionally and mentally, I think that was pretty tough for those first couple of weeks. But then, you know, like, as we kind of like braved that storm, patients started getting extubated and they started doing better and started going home. And so that was like really, really encouraging for me.
0: Wow. I, yeah, I can't imagine. I, what was like the turning point where you felt like, okay, we're getting a handle on this. Was there like a specific moment that it felt like it was, it, it moved?
1: Yeah. Good question. I, I, I don't know about like a specific moment, but definitely a week, I would say like by week three, it just felt like everyone had kind of figured out these patients a little bit better. Um, like oh, yeah. the, by the first couple of weeks, at least that I was there, it it, I don't know if this is true, but it kind of felt like we were still trying to figure out like even just the disease process of COVID and like what was working, what wasn't working. Um, and it may have just been that the patients that were on that unit at that time were just really, really sick, but it definitely felt by, by week three and four that, that the teams as a whole really had a better grip and handle on how do we manage these patients? How do we keep them stable? How do we, how do we work towards, you know, removing the breathing tube and and getting to a place where we can extubate them? And what are some clinical markers we can look for to, to see that they're, you know, doing worse or better. And, and I know that they had that in the first week, but it was just so chaotic and so many patients were doing so poorly. So overall it just felt like, the storm kind of just settled by like week three and especially week four. And um, by week five, I mean, our unit wasn't even recognizable. It was just a completely different place. So that was definitely encouraging.
0: Wow. I think one thing that um, is, is really scary for people that are not in the medical field, and I'm speaking from personal experience here, <laughs> like especially during when this was first starting and it was just way out of control and we didn't know what next the next day would bring is we don't know what to expect if we were admitted to a hospital, right? Mm. Like, let's say that we catch COVID and um, it gets bad and we and our doctor tells us we have to go into a hospital. What is that like? Because a lot of us on the outside don't know, and the only stories we hear are some of the grimmest, you know, most heartbreaking stories. Um, what is it like f- from a patient experience um, cause I think that if we can name it and talk about it, it might help ease fears, uh, specifically mm-hmm. my own Garrett. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, that's think... one thing that none of us, none of us know. And it's a story that's really hard to hear in the midst of this news cycle.
1: Yeah, that's a really good point, Craig. I, I don't know. I cannot speak from like an emergency department standpoint. Cause I was only, only in the ICU when I was there. Um, but I mean I could totally understand patients being freaked out because not only is this a terrifying virus but everybody that they come into contact with doesn't even look like a human. I mean we look like we look like we're in space, you know, with our gowns and our masks mm-hmm. and our visors and and there's just, it's so hard, I think, for, for patients to just see a, a, a person underneath all that, that PPE. And so uh, various things people were doing where they were not, at least in the ICU, because most of our patients were, you know, sedated and, and were like awake. But I know in like other units, they were like cutting out a picture of themselves, like of themselves smiling or, you know, something fun. And they would tape it to their chest uh, like the nurses would just to give the patient a sense of like, this is who I am underneath all this PPE. Like I'm still a person. Um, you know, I, I, and I think that actually really, really helped because I think that's part of what a lot of the anxiety was. And I will say another thing that made that made patients really anxious is that no family was allowed in the hospital. And that was from, you know, a safety standpoint, but that was so hard. Um, I spent so many hours on the phone with family and these people that I've never met in my entire life, having conversations I never imagined having just like these people that you don't know, but you also are forced to kind of know them in a really vulnerable way because their loved one wow. is in the ICU and they're dying and you're having to tell them about it. Um, you know, normally you would say that conversation for, you know, nurses have the convenience of having those hard conversations are mostly had with doctors. Like when, when the, the resident or the attending will, will call and update the family. Obviously nurses have a lot of conversations with family at the bedside. Um, but as far as like, that's at least I I shouldn't say for all nurses, but for me personally, um, I wasn't used to doing that. And so that was, Mm -hmm. that was something new for me. And, um, but I spent so many hours calling families, updating families, um, you know, when someone would pass, having to, to call and, and update the family, FaceTiming family, even though their their loved ones were like, you know, sedated and they couldn't like say hi and and uh, talk to them, at least like allowing the family to like see their loved one and to hopefully show and convey yeah. that we're taking good care of them. I mean, it's just like it was definitely a crazy time. Um, in the hospital. So I think the anxiety by patients was warranted. And I think another part of that too, was just that the healthcare system as a whole was stretched so thin. Um, And so normally, you know, you have like, you know, one nurse in the ED to, you know, six patients or, you know, something like that, where I don't even know if ratios existed in the ED and the emergency department when COVID was at its peak. I mean, it was just so so, so, so chaotic. Um, so I think that's part of it too, is just, is, you know, just feeling like you have somebody that, you know, and that's really looking out for you. And so I think now, um, you know, you know, I've just said all that and the people are probably freaked out, but I think, I think now, I think the disease (laughs) process as a whole has definitely, has definitely the, the social distancing has definitely helped. And so I know at NYU they have thirty percent of their beds available in case like any sort of of wow. um, any sort of you know they have a second wave of of COVID nineteen patients that come in, which is amazing for a, a, a New York hospital to have that ability is absolutely amazing mm-hmm. because all of the New York hospitals were stretched so thin. So I you know I can't speak for California, but I know California's done a really really great job at getting on this early and, and encouraging social distancing and shutting down things that they felt like they needed to do. Um, and so I feel like if someone does get it and they do have to go to the, the, the hospital, they can at least be at ease that, um, though people may be wearing like, you know, the PPE and they may look kind of scary. There's still a person under there that person I can speak from personal experience is doing their absolute best to provide the best care for you and to take really good care of you. And, um, and the hospital system is ready, you know, for a, another second wave or for more yeah. COVID patients. And, and at this point, it's, it's so much, if the better is not the right word, but, um, it, it's, it's, uh, it's a time. It's a. It's a time where where there's more known about the COVID nineteen disease process, and so subsequently, that's reflected in how we're treating patients medically. And I think patients are overall have better outcomes because of that.
0: Yeah, I. If, if there's one thing that's been really surprising to me during this whole thing has been just how people have actually done social distancing. And I know there's a mm-hmm. lot of quarantine fatigue right now, and there's some mm-hmm. discouraging things about crowds that are gathering and protesting. I, I get all of that, right? That's yeah. such a, that's such an insignificant minority compared to the fact that, you know, the overwhelming majority of people, um, particularly in California, but in most States, uh, have really taken this seriously. And yep. I, you know, it's, it's tragic. Cause we, I think we needed New York to, not, not to, we didn't need them to be this as much as New York was kind of the wake up call. Like, yes, we have to unfortunately, change, otherwise this will happen. And yeah. it was, it's a tragic wake up call. But I, I'm, I'm glad people took notice of it. And um, I think of the families that have had to go through this. And it's just, you know, it's just heartbreaking. But it is uh, the fact is, like, people have found a way to rally or rally around this and actually do this and put their lives on hold. Um, Hmm. which is something I found to be inspiring.
1: Uh, Me too. I mean, I think just the resiliency of humanity as a whole through Mm -hmm. this whole thing has been really, really inspiring to see about, you know, people, moms and dads who are working full-time jobs, able to homeschool their kids and figure out that out. I mean, that's crazy. Um, Able to, you know, figure out teachers who are having to translate their entire lesson plans into, video and zoom conferences. And I mean, I can't speak to the heroic work of that enough. I mean, that's just, that's amazing. (laughs) It's just people have really been, I think resilient as a whole through this, this whole, this whole, you know, thing. I mean, healthcare workers got so much love through this, this whole process, but I think your Trader Joe's employee is just as much of a hero as, as you know, the nurse working on an all COVID unit. I mean, I was so thankful that Trader Joe's was open and uh, you know, they were, they were (laughs) such a cool store, like encouraging really did a great job at doing social distancing in, in Manhattan and, and uh, you know, had hand sanitizer at the door for everybody. It would clean everybody's carts. I mean, it was just really cool to see. So
0: yeah. Yeah. I don't know if you noticed there was, there was pastors a couple of weeks ago who held a big press conference here in California that were telling the government that they were essential businesses and why couldn't they oh be open? And I just looked at them. I was like, guys, we're not essential. We are not yeah. essential. Come on.
1: Yeah. I I, I wholeheartedly agree. Um, you were talking about just the the idea of pastors trying to at least argue that their job is essential. There was a there was a um, an article that came out either today or yesterday, but um, on one of the science blogs that I follow, and, and it was I think it was a it was actually from a church in Butte County, in California, and I think one COVID positive patient that attended church translated into I don't want to misspeak, but I think it was over a hundred positive COVID cases, and it led to multiple deaths, and so I just the oh man. The ability of people to like really take this seriously and, and, um, and like you're saying, social distance, I think is, is it's so warranted, but again, it's also really hard for, I think people as a whole to understand the severity of it until you see it firsthand. Um, you know I, I, I our family's not perfect by any means and we could definitely do a better job of social distancing but you know i you do the best you can and and uh you try to take it as seriously as you can and and i think if a lot of people do that as a whole we can really make some headway on this thing
0: yeah it's been interesting to see uh, for me personally what i feel like i will risk things for cuz you know hmm. obviously everything now is kind of looked at through risk right and you know, I'm more willing to take risks with outdoor stuff than I am with indoor stuff. And it's been this, it's been this interesting kind of, um, I, I don't know. It's just really made me pause and look at what do I do and why is it valuable? Um, and that's, that's been a really strange experience for me. And I, I think that we're going to see that everybody, as it continues to open up here, people are going to feel more, um, more free to ask, like, why am I doing this? And I hope that that can continue to grow because, um, I think that we've, we've all kind of just done a lot of those stereotypical things for so long because we feel like it's what's expected of us. Hmm.
1: That's a good point. How how has it been for you? Like transitioning into trying to, you know, cultivate community as, as a church and, and, uh, deliver sermons and hold church online, what's the experience been like for you?
0: Well, you know, Garrett, I'm not a great internet evangelist. I'm just, it's not my, <laughs> it's not my thing. <laughs> um, you know, we're doing the best we can. And I, I, to Paradox's credit, like they've been really encouraging and understanding. Um, and And the closest that I've gotten to receiving from that is my daughter takes drum lessons and her teacher, Kevin, um, has transitioned to online lessons. And it's, it's like the primary thing that we receive from people, um, where they didn't have to do it. Like they could easily say, like, we'll resume lessons once this starts back up. And he's been able to figure out the technology and do some other things so that she can still take drum lessons. And it's been, you know, it's been a reprieve in the midst of all of these weeks. So I hope that paradox can be that for people. Um, I would not say that we're at our best, but I don't know if we need to be at our best right now. Um, right. And I know some other churches that have really viewed this as like, a, as a moment to really evangelize and grow and all that stuff. And I mean, we're open to that, but I I just want us all to relax and remain calm and just say, we have these, these fears and insecurities here and it's okay. Um, rather than just try to, just try to blindly keep pretending like everything's normal.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I really don't think people need to, like, I don't think a pandemic is a time that you capitalize on people's like vulnerabilities to join your church. I I think, I think it's totally okay to, (laughs) to just as like you're saying, a church is a reflection of the community that's, you know, makes, makes it up. And I think if people are feeling insecure and people are feeling anxious. I think it's totally okay and normal for the church to feel like that. If anything, that's, that is more helpful than offering people false hope, you know, of, of like, you know, everything's going to be fine we're going to be back to normal. It's like, yeah. you know, we don't know if everything's going to go back to normal. And it's so, and it, I think it's okay to say that and to say that, you know, in the midst of, our doubt and uncertainty, God's right there with us. I think the Bible has plenty of stories that speak to just that. So I think that, that at least I know speaking from a personal standpoint would be more helpful to me than, than having somebody try to sneak in and, and, uh, (laughs) try to get me to join their church. Well, (laughs) I...
0: (laughs) Well, I feel a lot of pressure each week to like tell people only positive things. Yeah, and that's been that's been one challenge that I've had, um, because the truth is, I don't know if I don't know if we're supposed to do that. But um, yeah, and we switched to the book of Job, which is definitely not that for this month. <laughs> um, but it's, it's always a now. temptation because, well, I feel like it's the best book because it's it's the one that says, like, all religious answers are, are hollow at the end of the day. <laughs> In compared yeah. to, comparison to this pandemic, and like I, you know, I there's a poll that just came out last week that found that two thirds of all American Christians believe that God is punishing us and asking us to change our behavior, wow. and with, through this pandemic, and it, that's just that's that's such an old idea that's addressed in the Book of Job, uh, but it's ignored because the villain the villain of the Book of Job is really religion, so <laughs> churches hmm. don't. Churches don't love to tell that story.
1: <laughs> yeah. Let's go, Craig. Preach it, man. This is great.
0: Oh, uh, well, you know, I I try to preach, but it's it's actually nice hearing somebody respond to it because I just preach into a camera right now, Garrett, and it's very very different <laughs> than what I'm used to.
1: <laughs> totally. Oh, I can't imagine. So, I that's that's really tough.
0: Yeah, it's on the, the grand scheme of things, it's a small deal, but I do miss meeting with people. And the hardest part, the hardest part is when our congregation is suffering, like we've had lost jobs and financial hardships mm. and all of that. Yeah. The one tool we have as the church to help with that is to be together. And that's been taken away. Mm. And we try our best to be in other people's lives right now, but it's 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 harder than it's ever been because you just don't see them on a weekly basis in person. Yeah. So take me back to just uh, kind of wrapping up what happened in New York and what it was like to come back home and uh, basically the the end of your time there.
1: Sure. Yeah, I mean, as a whole, it was kind of a blur. It was uh, it was a really busy time. Um, I worked quite a few hours while I was there just because they they had the the need for that and and um, I was also doing. Uh, class at the same time. So I, I didn't have a lot of class. I'm not like in full-time school by any means, but um, I was still having to, you know, keep up on studying. And I had a, a couple exams when I was there, actually finals week, like coincided with like the, I think it was like the second or third week of my time there. So that was a little, a little chaotic, oh, wow. but um, yeah, but I was able to make it through and, and uh, finish up my classes and, and, uh, oh man, I cannot describe for you the excitement of, especially towards, you know, Sorry, started, started getting towards the end of, of my time there. Just like I was the, by, by far the hardest thing of this whole experience was, um, being away from Cambria and Avalon. And, um, and I will say, you know, my wife is definitely just as much of a hero. I don't think what I did is heroic by any means. I, I, I just kind of saw it as my, my responsibility, but, uh, people have said that about people who have, you know, gone to New York and, and tried to help as much as possible. What my wife did is, mm-hmm. and, and raising, you know, being there for Avalon and being a sole parent is just been amazing. So I, uh, I am yeah. just as much admiration for her as anybody else through this whole thing. It's, it was really, really amazing. And, uh, anyways, being able to go back and, and, uh, get on the plane and, and, uh, see them they were there when night when I, when I landed and it was just, oh, it was, it was amazing. So I, uh, I'm so happy to be home now and I'm happy to be healthy and, um, yeah, luckily, luckily, um, I haven't been affected by COVID nineteen yet. You know, I thank God for that, and I've tried to be as careful as I could with using my PPE and, and hand washing and all that stuff. And and so, luckily, um, I feel I feel fortunate for that. So, yeah, right now I'm I'm um, I'm just kind of waiting for school to to resume, and and um, gonna look forward to kind of getting back into it.
0: Well, that's great. Well, hey, I really appreciate you sharing your story with us, and uh, just glad that you were able to go out there and um, just on behalf of all of humanity, just saying thank you for being a frontline worker and for your family uh, for being willing to do that. I find it nothing less than inspiring. Oh well, thanks,
1: man. I I uh, I want to say thankful well, thank you to you and and uh, Paradox Church too because I know you guys were were praying for me and and uh, my dad had a, a prayer group that was you know, praying for me and obviously my family and just knowing people are thinking of you and and spending time thinking about you really, really, uh, make, made a big difference as multiple nights where it was just really hard. And and I didn't know if I wanted to, (laughs) to to keep doing it. Um, and I don't know, just having, just having like, just knowing that people were, were praying for me really made it I don't know if easier is the right word, but it, it made it made me able to just kind of get through those shifts and and uh, knowing that, you know, that people were were, were thinking of me and and uh, and, that, you know, praying for my well-being and, and it just really helped. So I, I want to say thank you to you personally and, and also to Paradox Church for that. I was really, really, really kind of you guys. And it really meant a
0: lot absolutely well Garrett it's good to talk to you and we will uh talk to you sometime here in the near future but we hope that you have a great uh great week and that uh, things go smoothly as you transition back to full-time student
1: thank you thanks so much for having me and and just want to wish my best to everybody out there and, and just uh hope, hope everyone can kind of keep their head up and hopefully we'll uh, be able to turn the corner soon
0: sounds good man thanks so much